This morning we are beginning a new series of messages on the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. I've entitled the series Timothy, Titus, and You. And uh, my heart's desire is that God would use His Word uh, to prepare this church for your new senior pastor. And uh, so the pastoral epistles have been part of my life since high school. I remember occasions when uh, I would slip off to the library in my public high school and just read through the pastoral epistles. You can uh, do that in a lunch period. Uh, it's not, they're not long. They're just letters. Uh, but uh, these letters became formative in my life in terms of my purpose uh, as one who was called to shepherd God's flock. There's a lot in these letters for the church and for me as a pastor. So I'll be mostly preaching to myself and you can listen in. Uh, but I feel like that's something that uh, would be especially pertinent at this time in the life of the church. So let's read Scripture. Our Scripture today is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-6. through 6. And if you would stand in honor of God's Word, and we will read responsively 1 Timothy 1, 1-6. And uh, I will read the first verse, and then we will read verse 2 together, and so on down through verse 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Diane and I weren't here last week, but we did have the pleasure of watching you on television uh, this week. And uh, appreciate uh, Steve Johnson's message, uh, one of my favorite passages of scripture, Psalm 34, and I was greatly encouraged by the word of God. My heart was wonderfully warmed by hearing uh, the word of God being preached from this pulpit so ably in my absence. Uh, We did have the privilege of uh, visiting, uh, taking a road trip to Denver and spending time with our son and daughter-in-law and our four uh, growing grandsons out there. So we had a great time. And we're happy to be back with you again today. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, we're starting with the first six verses. Let's bow in prayer. Father, open the word to us today. To our individual needs. And to our corporate needs as a church. We pray that you would bless the search committee and their search for the next senior pastor of Wake Chapel Christian Church. Prepare the congregation through your word and by your spirit that together there might be a oneness of purpose moving forward until you come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this first message, Doctrine Makes a Difference. Doctrine Makes a a difference. The first few verses of this letter introduce the letter. And one of the things I, I love about ancient letter writing is that they tell uh, who it's from right at the beginning. Did you ever get a letter and try to figure out who it's from and you went to page three? Oh, 
That's who it's from. Okay, now I get it. But in ancient times, they'd put their name right at the beginning. Paul. And he was writing the letter. Who was he? An apostle of Christ Jesus. What a wonderful privilege he had. He had been a persecutor of Christians. But now he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Chosen and sent by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. He had had that personal appearance of Jesus. And it's according to the commandment of God our Savior. The Word of God is not merely uh, philosophical suggestions that you might choose to follow. They are the commands of God. Are you under the commands of God? I remember one elderly man who often after a service he would say to me, it's good to be under the Word. He was under the Word. Are you under the Word? You see, we do not come to the Word of God examining it to see if there's any good ideas that we like and that we think that we might follow. No, we are under the Word. That is, we are under a responsibility to obey this Word whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, and even whether it was the way we grew up or not. Okay? You might find some things in the Bible that are different than what your loving mother taught you. Are you under the Word? Is it the ultimate authority in your life? These are commands. Commands of God. God our Savior. Our Savior, our Rescuer. Why did we need a Savior? Because we were lost. Because we were drowning in sin. Because we were on the road to hell. That's why we needed God to be our Savior. And Paul says, he's my Savior. Is he your Savior? That's personal, isn't it? I love it when people say, he's my personal Savior. That's what it means to be born again, isn't it? God, our Savior. He wasn't just Paul's Savior. He was Timothy's Savior and the Savior of all who believe in Christ. And of Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior And then He is our hope. I was reading about a man who, in a park in Brooklyn, burned himself to death. They found his charred body. Why do people kill themselves? Because they have no hope. They lose hope. Hope. There are so many hopeless people in the world. They're going through the motions. They're going to work. They're coming home, but they have no hope. What is hope? Hope is a positive expectation of the future. I guess that's one reason I like Southern gospel music so much. Because it's always about heaven. Amen? It's about Beulah Lane. Right? I love it. Heaven. We have hope. Yeah, this world may be tough. We may be going through all kinds of things. But we have a positive expectation of the future. It may get worse, but someday it's going to get better. Amen? Someday. We have hope. And our hope is centered in Christ Jesus. Who, according to verse 2, is our Lord. You call me Lord and Master, but you don't do the things that I say. Hey, If He is your Lord, then your will has been bound to His will. Talking in Sunday school about two-year-olds and teenagers. You know, two-year-olds start having a will. Have you noticed that? They learn that little word, no. (laughs) And you start dealing with the issue of the will. Yeah. But He is our Lord. That means that we are pre-committed to obeying Him. My son David just retired from the army and he told me one thing. He said, you know what? He said, I have to obey the President of the United States, but you don't. Because he's my commander-in-chief. See, He's not just the President. 
He could give you an order, you wouldn't have to obey it. But if he gives me an order, I've got to obey it. And Jesus is our commander in chief. Amen? So we've already pre-decided that when he tells us to do something, we're going to do it. Amen? Yeah, it's not like, well, I don't know. If he's our Lord, then the answer is yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Our Lord. He's our hope. He's our Lord. And then there's a relationship here in verse 2. Do you see it? To Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Apparently, Paul had had led Timothy to faith in Christ. That faith that existed first in his grandmother and his mother, but now it was in Timothy, and he's Paul's own true son. Over the years, I've had the privilege of ministering to a number of people, but there are some special people. (laughs) There are some special people that I've had the privilege of being involved in them coming to Christ. He did all the work, but I was there, you know? I was the midwife. I always thought the mother ought to get $10,000, not the doctor. You ever notice that? (laughs) And why is it the mother does all the work and the doctor gets $10,000? I've always thought... I feel like the midwife when someone comes to Christ. I'm just there making sure that everything kind of goes. But it's the Lord that saves people. But when you're there, when somebody gets saved, and God uses you in some small way to, to lead people to faith in Christ, those people become very special to you. They become your children in faith. And Timothy was Paul's true child in the faith. And he says, I'm telling you, Timothy, what I'm praying for for you. What was was Paul praying for for Timothy? What was he wishing for him? He needed grace. He needed mercy. He needed peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. We all need grace, don't we? We get saved by grace. We're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by God's grace. But then we need God's grace every day. We need his favor every day. We should pray that for one another. And we all need mercy, don't we? You remember the man came back to the photographer? He said, that picture doesn't do me justice. man looked at him and said, you don't need justice, you need mercy. (laughs) And that's true. We all need mercy, don't we? I love the story about Abraham Lincoln. Somebody said he was two-faced. He said, do you think if I had two faces, I'd be wearing this one? (laughs) Yeah, we all need mercy. We need mercy. And peace. We all need peace. The peace of God in our hearts. And peace with God in our lives every day. And so Paul prayed for his true child in the faith. Do you pray for those that God has used you to lead to Christ? They're your spiritual children. Do you pray for your physical children? Sometimes when we're dealing with adult children, how many of you have adult children? Yeah, I'll tell you what. You can't just spank them and put them to bed anymore. You know what I'm saying? Those days are over. What are you going to do? But you can pray for them. You can pray for them. I'll never forget hearing my parents praying for me. I was a teenager. I was going by the, I was going in the kitchen for something, and my parents, they were kneeling by the bed praying for Danny. You know, Lord, help him with that rock and roll music. <laughs> praying for my music. They never criticized my music, but boy, they were praying about my music. You know, they were concerned. What did they had on their hearts? They prayed for me. You know, your children can't ever stop you from praying for them. You can pray for your grandchildren. You can pray for your great-grandchildren. What a spiritual covering. What a a wonderful anointing you have as parents and grandparents to pray for your children, for your grandchildren, for your great-grandchildren. To pray for their eventual spouses. Before they even meet them, you can pray for them. A ministry of prayer. And that's what he wished for them. Grace, mercy, and peace. And then in verse 3, he says, do you remember what I told you when I left? I was going up to Macedonia there in northern Greece, and I told you to stay put at Ephesus. Don't leave that church. 
Now, why would a pastor ever want to leave a church? You ever thought about that? Why would a pastor ever want to leave a church? Well, you say, it might be to go to a bigger church. Timothy was tempted to leave the church at Ephesus because of certain people who were in it. Do you see those certain men? They were teaching strange doctrines. They were paying attention to myths and endless genealogies. He mentions a couple of them by name in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so they will be taught not to blaspheme. You see, some people think that false teaching is a modern phenomenon. They think, yeah, isn't it terrible? All the false teachers, all the health, wealth, and prosperity people, people going in all kinds of crazy directions today. It's awful what's happened in our day. Hey, when did it start? It started in the Garden of Eden, folks. It did. With Satan's question, has God said? Okay, the doubting and the questioning of the Word of God goes all the way back. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels, which present the person of Christ from four different angles. Then we have the outworking of that in the book of Acts. And then we have the epistles of Paul and others that are mostly corrective in nature because the church was going astray from the earliest place. Why? Because Satan is active in churches. One boy told my dad, they were in a church that had these big bowls with light fixtures up in the ceiling. And this boy told my dad, he says, the devil just gets up there with a big paddle and stirs things up. <laughs> and how sad it is. There are so many different churches all disagreeing with one another. So much confusion in churches and in Christendom today. And how do we sort out all these issues? Paul had warned the church. Look with me back at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. And he tells them about his ministry to them. And here's what he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. God did not call any of us to make disciples to follow us. He has called pastors to bring people into discipleship of Jesus Christ. Don't ever put any man on any kind of a high and lifted place. Really. Your pastor should be down here. You know what I'm saying? Don't put him on a pedestal. Don't put your new pastor on a pedestal. Because he will fall off. Or jump off. I don't know. Uh, he's going to come off. If you exalt any man in the place of Jesus Christ in your life, God will destroy your That's what he does. Do not lift your new pastor up. I hope you like him. I hope you love him. I hope you learn from him. I hope he is a godly and honorable man that will be a blessing to you and will open the Scriptures to you and show you Christ. But don't put him on a pedestal. Don't put him on a pedestal. I'll tell you what, he's got problems. Your new pastor is going to have, I hate to say that, but your new pastor is going to have problems. I know that because I have problems. <laughs> Paul had problems. What does he say? What does he call himself? He says, I am the chief of sinners. He says that right in this, in this chapter. Yeah. Chief of sinners. I was a persecutor, violent aggressor. Uh, I was ignorant. It was un unbelief. Yeah. And Timothy had his problems. Paul loved him. He thought highly of him. He says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. But he had to warn him about youthful lusts. 
He had to warn him about fearfulness. And Timothy even had a, a weak stomach. Don't take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're often infirmities. He got sick a lot. That's really annoying when your pastor gets sick a lot. Say, well, he's not here today. You know, he got sick. Pastors get sick. They get fearful. They have lusts. They have problems. Timothy did. All pastors have problems. He was even, some people thought, well, he's too young. You know, why are pastors always too young or too old? You ever notice that? (laughs) When G. Campbell Morgan became a pastor of a rather large church, an old man came up to him and said, Pastor Morgan, I think you're too young to pastor this great church. So I'm going to pray for you every day. And if you think your pastor is too young, too old, too this or too that, let it drive you to pray for him. Paul had a personal relationship with Timothy. And he orders him, he urges him in verse 3 to remain on at Ephesus. He says, don't quit. It's tough. There are strange people with strange doctrines. In the church, people are rising up and speaking perverse things, misusing the law of God, drawing disciples after them. There's going to be all kinds of problems, but Timothy, don't give up. Don't quit. And if you're serving the Lord, I want to say that to you too. Don't quit. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're ministering in Awana or some other ministry. And you say, I just don't know if it's doing any good. In fact, it seems like things are going south. It's just crazy. And I have so many other things in my life. Maybe I should let somebody else do it. You know, I always hear older people say, we need to get some young blood in here. So I'm just going to quit. Don't quit. Mature people are more needed than ever in the church of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul leave Timothy and tell him to stay put in Ephesus? Because he needed someone who was grounded in Christ, filled with the Spirit, discerning of the Word of God in order to deal with the false teachers in the church. Why? Because doctrine is foundational. Now, there's all kinds of preachers, and I don't know who your next pastor is going to be. And he might be funny and he might not be funny. He might be tall, he might be short, he might be young, he might be old. Uh, Who knows? There's all kind of varieties of men that God calls to be preachers. But one thing that he must be is he must have a foundation of the teachings of the Word of God. He must be right about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. That is non-negotiable. That's a deal breaker. That's the big deal. Okay. Why? Because doctrine is foundational. Evangelism must be based on correct doctrine or it's confusion. Counseling must be based on correct doctrine or it's useless. And what good is a nice building if the teaching taking place in it is corrupted by error? What good is improving society if the people in it are going to hell because nobody told them how to be saved. Doctrine is important. It is foundational to everything we do. And yet we hear that we have to water down Bible doctrine. We have to push certain things aside so that we can win the world to Christ. And so some people have abandoned the six-day creation clearly taught in Scripture. Others have abandoned the teaching of the rapture clearly taught in Scripture. Others don't want to talk about the tribulation or the millennium or Israel or any of that stuff because it's controversial. But the whole Word of God is true and the whole Word of God must be taught. Paul said, I taught you the whole counsel of God. The church at Ephesus had been founded on the whole counsel of God. And this church has had the blessings of a pastor for 30 years who taught the whole counsel of God. 
you have had the blessing of a Bible-teaching pastor. Pastor Ross Marion laid a foundation of Bible doctrine in its fullness, in its details, in its thoroughness. And he has taught you the Word of God. You have that foundation. And whoever you get as the next pastor of this church had better be one who continues that strong, firm foundation in the whole counsel of God. You see, people say, well, Bible doctrine divides. Did you ever hear that one? Doctrine divides. I want to tell you, doctrine does not divide. False doctrine divides. Wrong doctrine divides. Unbiblical doctrines divide. But the truth unites true believers around Christ. And the Bible is entirely true. Genesis is true. The book of Revelation is true. Everything in the Bible is true. And one of the most important things you can have in your next pastor is a man who believes everything. I remember one pastor, he believed the Bible so much, he even believed the part that said genuine leather. You know what I mean. He was like, he believed it all. Very important. Very important. How do I know that the whole Bible is true and important? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And every word is inspired, it is profitable, and it is true. Jude wanted to write about the common salvation. He wanted to write about salvation. He wanted to talk about salvation. What did he say? He said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, that is, the doctrines of the Christian faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Hey, if it's new, it's not true. If you get a pastor in here that comes up with something that nobody ever heard before, that he invented, it's not true. It's been once delivered to the saints. It's all here in the Bible. And if you have to go beyond the Bible for anything, you're going beyond what God said. It's once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know there are people today that are turning the grace of God into lewdness? All they talk about is grace. And they promote immorality in the name of grace. Beware of anyone who misuses the grace of God. The grace of God leads us to repentance. The grace of God leads us to humility. The grace of God leads us to holiness. And people that are promoting immorality are misusing the concept of grace today. He says, instruct them. The word is charge. It means to... uh, Hold someone responsible for something. It is important that the truth be that which goes across this pulpit. Why is it that people put up with so much religious nonsense and speculation and ideas of men as if they came from God? Does it matter whether it is true or not as long as it makes me feel good? Some of you are pharmacists. How do you feel about your pharmacist? Do you feel that your pharmacist should maybe experiment with some things? Maybe try this and try that? What do you think? What about your surgeon? Do you care whether your surgeon does it correctly or not? I think we're all pretty particular about pharmacists and surgeons, and you ought to be as careful with your preacher. And make sure that he delivers the prescription the way God wrote it. Amen? Did you hear about the doctor got thrown out of medical school because they could read his writing? (laughs) 
But apparently pharmacists can read that writing. I don't know how they do it. But they got to get it right. Amen? And sometimes this book is hard to read and hard to understand. That's why you have a preacher that went to college and seminary and studied Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and studied all those things so he can go into that text and he can see what God said. And then on Sunday morning, he can deliver it to you. One person said, well, you preachers, you only work one day a week. It's a great life, you know, just one day a week. But it's the preparation. Sunday is when we serve the meal. But there's been some cooking going on during the week. Some blending of ingredients. But truth is important, isn't it? And in your recipe, you wouldn't want to put good food and poison together. They just recalled a lot of eggs. Did you hear about that? Salmonella. Yeah. Check your eggs, folks. Or at least cook them good, you know? Because you don't want to eat poison. And you don't want to hear poison over this pulpit. And a Christian school teacher asked the following question of little boys and girls in the class. What is false doctrine? Up one little boy's hand. Here came the answer. It's when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. Well, he got the right definition, didn't he? Yeah. Wrong doctrine. Why? It makes a difference what is taught over the pulpit. A Peanuts cartoon featured Lucy and Linus looking out the window at a steady downpour of rain. Boy, said Lucy, look at that rain. What if it floods the whole world? It will never do that, Linus replied confidently. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind, said Lucy with a relieved smile. Sound theology, pontificated Linus, has a way of doing that. <laughs> and yet there are people today who call themselves evangelicals who say that Noah's flood was a local flood. Then what does that promise of the rainbow mean? No, there was a worldwide flood. God created the world in six days. Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man who paid for the sins of the world with his own blood on the cross and bodily rose from the dead and is coming back for us again. That is the truth of this Bible. It is entirely true. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There are angels and there are demons. It's all true. Very important. Now what does wrong doctrine produce in the church? Verses 3 and 4. It produces disputes. Verse 4, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. Why are there so many denominations, so many churches, so many preachers all disagreeing with one another? Uh, it's because there is wrong doctrine. Because Satan is at work seeking to develop false doctrines and false religions. And that's why believers must be those who search the Scriptures daily themselves to see if these things are true. I'm glad you bring your Bibles to church. I'm glad you open your Bibles when a preacher is preaching and you see whether what he's telling you is in the Bible or not. Because the job of the pastor is not just to tell you what he thinks, but to point out what God has said in the Bible. I was preaching at Appalachian Bible College Chapel a number of years ago, and one of the professors came up to me afterwards. I thought, oh no, you know, what did I do wrong? Why did I say wrong? He said, you said what it says. <laughs> the biggest compliment he could have given me. You said what it says. That's the job of the preacher, is to say what it says. Foolish and ignorant disputes generate strife, and they come from false teaching. By adding other things, he says that they teach no other doctrine of another kind or strange doctrine. They are adding to the Word of God or taking away from it. But there is a curse according to the book of Revelation to any who add to the Word of God or who take away from it. It is everything we need right here in this book. We don't need the Book of Mormon. We don't need the doctrines and covenants. We don't need the Jehovah's Witness additions or any of these other things that people have added to it. Some people don't believe the whole Bible. They're the liberals. 
Then you have the Catholics and the cultists who believe the Bible, they say, but then add all this contradictory stuff to it. He says, no, the Bible is everything that we need. It is full. It is enough. In 1 Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine that accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. We are living in a day of huge churches being built on health, wealth, and prosperity teaching who think that godliness is a way of material gain. That is false teaching. And yet, many people are following that self-centered idea even today. Wrong doctrine is a weed that must be pulled out of your garden. How many have been pulling weeds yet? Anybody doing that? My wife got me into pulling weeds up there in Lynchburg. And those weeds had been there a long time. I mean, they were really deeply rooted. I had to get this special weed puller tool and lift those things out. And it just seemed like, boy, they had deep roots, you know? And it's amazing when you try to pull out those weeds. But your plants, your garden will not grow and flourish until you get rid of the weeds. False doctrine is the weeds in a church And a wise pastor not only preaches the positive truth, but deals with the negatives of error very, very clearly. He says, they teach these wrong things by telling stories to prove a point. Some pastors use what I call skyscraper theology. Their sermons are just one story on top of another. It's just stories. Now, stories have their place, and I like to tell stories to illustrate truth. And Jesus told a lot of stories to illustrate truth, but stories never prove a truth. Truth must be proved by Scripture. Thus saith the Lord. And people who are telling stories to prove their point will often lead people astray. He says, nor give heed to fables, myths, stories. These are not myths. These are not fables. These are not mere stories that will inspire you in your life. These are true events that historically happened and are real. What did Isaiah say? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light in them. Endless genealogies. How many of you have had your genetic testing done yet? You know your DNA you know that you're 2% this or 7% that or so you did. Okay, good. Uh, you know, and people are so into their genealogy. Hey, I'll tell you what, the most important genealogy you can have is that you are a child of God. Amen? And when you know whose child you are and that you have been born of, of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you will have the greatest knowledge about your potential and your abilities that you could ever have. Don't give heed to all these endless genealogies. Know who you are in Christ. And idle talk. How sad it is that people are graduating from seminaries today who are considered so wise because they'll say things like, well, I'm not sure about anything. And say, oh, they're so wise. Some big tragedy happens on television. They interview a great religious leader and they say, why did this happen? And he says, I don't know. And they say, so wise. Because he doesn't know anything. Wait a minute. No, we do know some things, don't we? We don't know everything. There's a lot of things we don't know. But we do know a lot because we have the Bible and everything in it is true. And it's okay for a pastor to say, I don't know. It's okay for a pastor who doesn't know it all. But he ought to know what the Bible says and be able to preach it with great confidence. What does right doctrine produce in us? What is the point of right doctrine? Is it just to swell our heads and make us critics of everybody but ourselves? No. What is the purpose of true 
doctrine. What is the point of it all? Notice verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. What is a great commandment? To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is a second commandment? To love one another. That is the culmination of all of God's law. To love God, to love others. Some of us heard us some people singing about that last night at the concert. It's true. To love God and to love one another is a summation of everything. You say, Pastor, could you just boil it down? That's boiling it down. Love God and love others. And the result of correct doctrine being received and lived out is a life of love for God and for others. The word here is agape. It is the same word used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Now, what kind of soil in, in the life produces this fruit of love towards God and others? He says there's three basic ingredients in a life that produces love when biblical doctrine is fed into it. It is pure, a pure heart. The heart deals with the motives in the inner person, the real us. Sometimes people say, well, his personality changed so much when he got Alzheimer's. You ever hear that one? Her personality just entirely changed. Well, maybe it did. But maybe it was underneath all along, and it was being censored, and it was being edited by the frontal lobe that no longer is functioning, and now what this person was really thinking is coming out of their mouth. Is the real you the same in the inside as the outside? That's integrity. When we are on the outside, what we are on the inside. I I traveled to Israel with two young men a couple of years ago, and uh, after we had been living together for 10 days, day and night, Young man gave me one of the finest compliments he's ever given. My head got so big. He said, you know, pastor, he said, I didn't know if you'd be the same, you know, all the time being roaming with you and all as you are, you know, in the pulpit and stuff. He said, but you are, you're the same guy. I thought, well, that's good. That's what I want to be. I want to be the same crazy guy I am in the pulpit that I am, you know, in the bedroom. Why? Uh, we, we need to have that integrity of being the same person. And that has to do with a purity of heart. And only Jesus can cleanse our hearts by His blood and make us the people who truly do love God and love others more than we love ourselves, which is natural to put ourselves first. A pure heart. And then a good conscience. Good conscience. The Bible speaks of deacons who hold the faith, that is, the true doctrines of the Christian faith, in a pure conscience. We made a mistake in our house in Lynchburg last fall. We left our bird bath up all winter. I'd never really had that nice of a bird bath. It was almost concrete bird baths. And you know what happened? It froze and it thawed and it froze and it thawed and then Come spring, it leaked. It leaked. And I'd fill it up and then it would leak out. And I'd fill it up. I tried spraying it with stuff to seal it. It didn't work. It kept leaking. Finally, finally, this week, I got a new top. And it holds water. It doesn't leak. You know, your conscience is like that. If you have a good conscience, a functioning conscience, that when you are convicted about something by the Holy Spirit that it's wrong, and you confess it, and you make it right with God and others, you will keep a good conscience and you will keep the the faith. You'll keep the faith. Because the faith is kept in a good conscience. But if you allow things to just go undealt with, Holy Spirit convicts you, you just push it aside. You don't straighten things out with God or others. And increasingly, that filter called the conscience gets all clogged up. And it doesn't work anymore. And it becomes seared and becomes deadened. And no longer is it working. And you become just a self-oriented person. He says, from a pure heart, a good conscience is one that is sensitive to the issue of right and wrong. And you make things right. You confess it. You repent you uh, straighten things out. I would not be in the ministry today if God had not dealt with me many decades ago about something in my life. 
It was a sin that I would commit, and then I'd confess it to God, and then I'd commit it again, confess it to God. And I went to Bill Gothard's seminar. Anybody ever go to Bill Gothard? Yeah. Instituting Basic Youth Conflicts. And he taught about how you need to clear your conscience, not only before God, but before people that you have sinned against. One of the hardest things you ever do. I remember I went to my wife, and I confessed sin to her. Yeah, my wife, get the right one over here. Point to Alan. Went to my wife, and I confessed a sin to her that God had, had, had really convicted me about. It was a secret sin, but I, convict, I confessed it to her, and I committed myself to accountability to her in that area and, and, and to deal with that in an outward way. And, and, bring, and, and you know what? I believe, that, I believe that's the reason I'm still in the ministry today, because God worked in my life and gave me the grace to humble myself and straighten that out with her. Maybe there's a phone call you need to make today. Maybe there's somebody you need to admit a wrong that you've done. Now, I can't tell you what that is. Nobody else can. But in your conscience, if the Holy Spirit is is convicting you that you have wronged someone else and you've never confessed it, you've never tried to uh, give restitution for that which you stole, or you never straightened out that lie that you told, then you need to clear that. And I'll tell you what, if you will humble yourself and confess your wrongs, not only to God, but to others. Paul said, here and I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. If you will humble yourself and straighten those things out as best you can, as much as lies in you, God will bring a clarity, a freshness, a newness to your spiritual walk with God. He'll bring a joy and a peace and a love experience into your life, and He will give you an ability to know truth from error in regard to the Word of God, because you will be walking with Him. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And Timothy didn't need to be told about sincere faith because his mom had it. That's what Paul said. It dwelt first in your mother and in your grandmother, Lois and Eunice. They both had it. He'd seen it in his grandma and his mom. They had sincere faith. And now it was dwelling in Timothy. He had genuine faith. That is, he trusted the Lord. He didn't trust himself. He didn't trust his circumstances. He trusted the Lord. And when you have sincere faith, and a good conscience, and a pure heart, and you receive the true teaching of the Word of God, it will produce the beautiful flower and fruit of love for God and love for others in your life. It'll happen. It will not be something you have to contrive or work up or make it happen in your own strength. God will produce His love in your heart for God and others in the soil of a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith as the true doctrines of the Word of God are received and believed and lived out in the power of God's Holy Spirit. So, how you doing? How you doing with that? Are you receiving the commands of Scripture with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith that produces God's love in your heart and in your life. Let's bow in prayer. And I want to just give us a a time of silence for God to speak to you before you start everything else in your life today. What has God spoken to you about? Is your heart right with God? Are you yielded to Him? If not, yield your will to Him. Say, Lord, I'm willing to do Your will. Forgive me for being willful. Help me to submit to Your will. Do you have a good conscience? Are there people that you need to straighten out things with? Has the Holy Spirit brought a person, a face, an event, a sin to your mind? Something you have a guilty conscience about that you need to straighten out. You need to make a phone call. You need to call somebody or visit somebody. Ask for their forgiveness. Admit you've been wrong. Seek to make restitution for the wrong done. Straighten things out. 
Is your faith sincere? That is, do you really believe your beliefs? Do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe the Bible is true? Is your faith sincere? Father, I pray that you would give grace and strength and wisdom to each one who is seeking to do your will. I pray that today may be a day of some visits, some phone calls, some connections made. I pray, Lord, that you would bring about a glorious fruitfulness in each life that is under the sound of your word today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we just are grateful for an opportunity to come to your house for worship and fellowship, fellowship that is centered around Christ, our Savior, and worship that is centered around your true, faithful, and correct word. Lord, just thank you for that true word, and thank you for this opportunity that we have someone in our pulpit that delivers that word. Lord, I look at the flowers and all the new growth and all the new life and beginnings that spring brings us. Lord, I pray that we'll reflect on that and we'll reflect on that new life, that new beginning, just as you've given us our Savior for our new life, our new beginning. Let us share that with others, O Lord. Lord, our mission of the week is Hand of Hope. We ask your many blessings upon them, but we especially pray for those young women that need your hand to touch their heart in difficult times. Lord, as we go from here today, just lead, guide, and direct us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.